This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that is safe as a bank. Well, at least I like to think so. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me this week is not Doc, and nearby Marty is not here with me. In fact, I've got a special interview guest, a man that hopefully many of you have had the chance to hear from, uh, to hear about, a very, very smart guy who I've been, I've known on off, I reckon, for about eight years, although we've probably only been in the same room about half a dozen times because such is the such is the way of these things. I'm joined by Greg McKenna. G'day, Greg. G'day, Scott. Great to be with you, mate. Thank you, mate. Now, look, you've had, you've, you're a man of many hats. Uh, in the time I've yeah. known you, you were a business journalist. You ran a trading business. Then you ran your own trading business. Um, you turn up now, you're CEO of Police Bank, uh, a customer-owned bank. Uh, national, I think you are? Uh, New South Wales, uh, New South Wales Police, Australian Federal Police and Border Force. So that you go. kind of Beautiful. Very good. And, and mate, you were, I think you, you worked at a bank before then, I think on a currency desk, do I remember that correctly? Yeah, I've been in banking since I left school in 1986. When they floated the Aussie dollar back in 1983, I just thought, <laughs> I, I want to I do that, I want to do that. And um, I was lucky enough, I got into the Westpac dealing room in 1988 when I was, uh, I hadn't just, I, I was just 18 still. And um, okay. yeah, so I've been involved in lots of different things, funds management, trading, strategizing the currency strategy thing like like you say um you know doing my own stuff treasurer of a building society during the gfc lots of different things and then now i'm um i'm ceo of police bank it's uh it's been a a uh, an interesting journey but uh, it's been a fun one now fellas that's exactly as you can already tell from from greg's response why i thought greg would be such a great person to have on the podcast there's a better reason though and that is greg and i did appear together and sometimes separately on sky news business way back in the day your money in the meantime uh and greg and i kind of got on really well we came from really different perspectives at the time greg was uh, talking about you know trading and charts and i was talking about long-term fundamentals but at a very basic level we had this really similar worldview um, behavioural finance has been a key one. I think that's, I don't know if it's still on your Twitter oh, bio, 100%. Greg, but it I'm, used I'm to be. I'm still a behavioural guy. Absolutely. And so, you know, kind of the, the, the worldview, not that this is about confirmation bias necessarily, but Greg's just a really smart, thoughtful guy that even though he had different perspectives and different approaches to stocks in particular at the time, it gave us a really just, it was a really you know interesting conversation. I always learned something from Greg. And again, mate, because, I mean, we've been talking about getting you on the podcast now for, I want to say, a couple of years, so probably about three jobs ago. Um, But, but, you know, given where you are, (laughs) given where you are, and given what you've done, um, I just wanted to really kind of get your, just get your take on what on earth is going on. So, mate, I don't even really know where to start, but I think I'll start, we're recording this on Wednesday, the 3rd of June. Hopefully we'll go up in a day or two, mate, so it won't be too, too much out of that by the time we get there. So, I'm sure you've seen the numbers this morning. Let me just start on an economic level, on a macro level. Um, GDP growth or lack thereof, zero or minus 0.3% out today. Just for the just for the, just for the sheer sake of it and in that context, you can talk about the numbers if you want or just generally. Just tell me how you're kind of seeing the economy, society, and without being too kind of grandiose about it, but just, you know, kind of where's your head at in terms of how you're thinking about how we're getting through this pandemic? Yeah, well, I think uh, I'd rather be in Australia than uh, pretty much, uh, and New Zealand, than any country on the planet right now. Uh, we've handled right. it better. Our society's handled it better. Um, our economy's coming out of it sooner. The job keeper from the government, um, you know, I, I don't want to talk too much about police bank, but the reality was that the number of hardship cases that we were getting fell mm. like a stone the week that job keeper came out. So oh, that, wow. was re- okay. that was really important. You know, in that week or two before that, we'd been getting quite a few hardship cases. But as soon as the mm. government released JobKeeper, that slowed to a trickle. Now, I know we've got a different customer set than banking across the country, but it, right. it made an impact. And, you know, my liaison, if I want to talk like the RBA, of people in the yep. economy, you know, business owners, all that kind of stuff, they said exactly the same thing. JobKeeper was a really, really important thing. So I really worry when the government talks about shutting it off early, taking the money out, and I'm with the Reserve Bank 100% when they say, let's just settle about you know what we're going <laughs> to do in September yeah. and be really careful. So I guess my macro view um, is improved because of that. And you know the, the numbers are the numbers are the numbers, right? They're, they're, they're historical to a certain extent. You know this this next quarter, the one that we're in. Uh, is the one where all the damage is going to be done. And, you know, yeah. I do have a problem with the Reserve Bank's 
collapse, bounce back. And I think that their, their forecast, while numerically that's probably right, their forecast for where uh, unemployment's going to be in a couple of years' time are absolutely inconsistent with where they say growth's going to be. Um, right, okay. Uh, yeah, it's just, to me, it just doesn't look possible. And if you think about where we were coming into COVID, we were coming in weak. We were coming in yeah. with growth coming from immigration. We were coming in with the per capita growth rate either negative or flat um, for a number of quarters. And that, to me, isn't a scenario uh, of great joy. And, and now that they've dropped rates yeah. down to 0.25%, that's a good thing. Um, the problem is that they never did anything over the couple of years previous when they really could have made an impact. They, they yeah. let unemployment be too high for too long. They didn't get busy. And I worry now, and you can see it in um, Andrew Charlton's alpha beta series of, of spending, the people who are spending are the lotto winners, the people who took their money out of super, the people who right. are, are, are recipients of government money. The people who mm. aren't spending are people who are employed. Now, what does that tell you? That tells you that yeah. the underlying economy is still weak. So I'm really worried about the macro outlook um, for Australia. We'll get the natural V, the, new t the, the numerical subtraction that we're going to get in this quarter, the numerical bounce back we'll get in the next quarter, but the underlying structure of our economy uh, is weak. So we need this pile to, you know, to lift uh, as, as fast as we can. Um, and, and that's probably why the New South Wales government in particular is opening up as quickly as it can and some other states are lagging a little bit. It's clearly that the government here has said we need to get this economy going. Yeah, tough one. But you, you've, you've covered so much great ground there. I, I've got about 60, 65 different follow-on questions. So I'll try and give them some sort of format. Um, I will leave policy alone for a little second. least government policy, the job keeper, job seeker stuff. I completely agree with you. It, it did do exactly what was needed at exactly the right time. Yep. I mean, I've got, I've had a view for a long time and I, it sounds like you're different, which is great. So we'll have a chance to, you can tell me why I'm wrong. Um, the, the idea of rates, 0.75, 0.5, 0.25, like, I don't want to be too flippant about it, but for most people, it's kind of the same price, right? If you're yes. not going to borrow at three, you're going to borrow at 2.8, probably not. Now, if it's 2.8, you've got a bit more cash in the back pocket. So yeah, that's absolutely stimulatory for the economy. I, I have, I've had a long-handed view that the RBA has probably cut twice more than it needed or should have needed to because it was fiscal policy that was lacking. You know, the whole big stick, the RBA has got, got one lever, it pushes it down or it pulls it back. Um, flying the biplane, the RBA, you've probably heard me say this before, the, the, the federal government's you know, flying a 747 or an A380 with God knows how many switches, dials, buttons, you know, and to some degree, while the RBA did kind of what it has needed to do in the event, I don't know that our, your point about structurally, are we structurally weaker because of a 0.25 rate? And again, I think you're probably right, they should have gone earlier if they're going to do anything, but it feels to me, and not to be political about it at all, whichever party's in power, whatever policy has been put forward, it feels like a fiscal that, that maybe is asleep at the wheel. Oh, 100%. The, 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 the biggest issue for the Australian economy is that, you know, the RBA has been too doctrinaire. I, I personally think the RBA has lost its way. I, I think that it, what okay. the RBA did over the last five or 10 years is it forgot about the humans. You know, con consumption makes up right, like roughly 60% yeah. of our economy. And yeah, yeah. I've got these models of the economy. I remember having conversations with um, RBA operatives during the GFC thinking you're not thinking about what the people are going to do. You're not thinking about the behavioural aspects of this. And, right. you know, to, to a certain extent, they fell into a hole with their focus on housing. They got behind mm -hmm. the eight ball. They didn't get to react. And they weren't aggressive enough with their government masters. And it, as you say, okay. it's not about political. If it had been a... Uh, a Labor treasurer or a Liberal treasurer, they, they wouldn't have been aggressive. Right, right. But that's what they needed to do. They needed to say, you need structural reform, you need to stimulate these parts of the economy. And they tried to say it, but they just really didn't. So to a certain extent, they've been hamstrung. Um, mm. But the other thing is, they've got a bully pulpit, the <laughs> likes of which no one else in this economy and this country has outside of yeah. our political class. Now, it was used by one of the former governors in wage negotiations back 20 years ago or something like that. I think the union's got a bit um, aggressive in some of their pay claims. And the governor at the time, I think it was McFarlane, um, but I'm, I'm not sure, basically said, if you get that pay rise, I'm going to have to put rates up. And then the heat came out of that and they had a more sensible discussion. So we yeah, needed right. to see a bit more of an aggressive insertion uh, by mm. the RBA using its bully pulpit um, in a way that they haven't done. And they just haven't. They're now in the invidious position of 
not being able to do a thing. Yeah, yeah. Which leads to the question, 0.25, there was some thought that maybe they'd cut rates to 0.15 or just do something a little bit extra but keep the rates positive. What's your view on the odds of a, of a zero or a negative interest rate scenario? Um, negative, I hope not. I hope not, I hope never. One of the things that why. people... Beg your pardon? Just tell us why. Okay, so behaviourally again. Um, you know, if, if we think about where the economy was, um, each individual trying to look after their families, trying to do their best, they're saving a bit more. The tragedy of the commons is that that means that uh, people are saving more, they're spending less, the underlying economy is weak, aggregate demand's low. That's where we were coming into this. Uh, you drop rates down now after the surprise. Now, this is really important. I remember my mum and dad ran a trucking company during the last recession. It was awful. You know, I remember when we used to do odds and evens for um, car for petrol rationing during the 70s, right? <laughs> yes. I, you remember? Yeah. I remember when yeah, my dad got put off work. I remember not having any money. Yeah. I remember seeing dad go from gainfully employed to selling kitchens and what that did to you. I'm a very, very conservative yeah. person because we went through that in my household, right? We've just yeah, gone right. through a shock after almost 30 years of uninterrupted economic sunshine where a whole mm. large proportion of our economy, our, our citizens have just gone, oh, heck, I'm not ready mm. for a crisis. I don't have enough money. And if you go back to that alpha beta data, what does that show you? That the average Joe and Josephine are not spending. And that to me suggests that they're going to save more. So the, you know, to be an economist, which I'm not, the MPC has gone down. The marginal propensity to consume has gone down, mm -hmm. except mm -hmm. in the lower paid, which is where all the spending's happening at the moment. And the MPS, yeah. the marginal propensity to save has gone up. Now, now yeah. why is that important for negative rates? You take rates negative, people are going to save more, not less. Right. Now, yeah. I'm not going to charge a police officer and her or his family to put money in my bank. So the other mm -hmm. thing is it undermines the fabric of banking. You know, so we can get through it, but skinny margins, that kind of thing. I think it's a terribly negative um, thing for the economy if we, if we go negative. But the other thing that people don't think about with what the Reserve Bank has done, and I applaud them, this is a brilliant move and it doesn't get any coverage. What they did when they dropped rates to 0.25% is they said, oh, and by the way, We've also got this emergency funding line. So, Greg, you as CEO of Police Bank, or um, you know, uh, Matt, you know, as as CEO of um, CBA or somewhere like that, you can borrow up to three percent of your total balance sheet liabilities at zero point two five percent for three years. Right. What does right. that do? That gives me money at zero point two five. It gives the CBA money at zero point two five. It gives every financial institution. Three-year money at 0.25. Now, for mm. me, that's a big discount. That's probably a percent to a percent, one and a quarter percent off what I would have to borrow three-year money at. Wow. CBA, okay. it might only be 50-point discount, right? Because yeah, yeah, they're yeah. a major and they get lower margins, right? But they've, they've actually accounted for another couple of rate cuts in that. Now, it wasn't just for uh, home loans. It was for SMEs as well. So the, 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 the Reserve Bank has done what it can Mm. with keeping rates at 0.25. It's effectively flattened the curve for, yeah, right, right. Um, for bank borrowing. And that's a really powerful thing that it's done. So I don't think that they are... That's got, that's got no coverage. You know, Bill's come out this week and said, you know, maybe they should go negative because blah, blah, and blah. It's not going to work on the currency. You know, it doesn't matter what you do on the currency. If the US is burning down buildings and people are losing confidence in the president, well... The US dollar gets a little bit weaker, the Aussie dollar gets stronger, so does everything mm -hmm. else. So mm -hmm. it's not going to work on the currency. The currency is far too complex for just say, oh, if we get um, <laughs> rates negative, it's, it's going to drive the Aussie down. It may not. That's the mm -hmm. thing. And that's where the RBA has consistently been wrong for the past five years. They've forgotten the humans from mm -hmm. the consumer point of view. And they've, it really gets up my nose. They've forgotten the humans who make the investment decisions. They have fundamentally misunderstood what drives demand from institutional investors for the Aussie dollar. They thought by dropping rates that the, the demand would dry up and people would sell. The reality was people sold ages ago. They're just not interested, uh -uh. right? We are irrelevant again. When we have a nice pickup to the US and the rest of the developed <laughs> world, we are relevant. Yeah. When we flatten yeah. to, the rest of the, to the US and the rest of the developed world, we simply become irrelevant. 
And that means that, that that's one of the reasons why, except for the COVID crisis, when there were lots of crises over the last few years, the Aussie didn't go down. It's because no one had any. There was none to yeah. sell. And so <laughs> to sell, right. yeah. there's been all these kind of conceptual mistakes because, you know, the RBA and others have got their theories and their models <laughs> and they forget to take the human into account. And that was the, the great message of, of John Kay and Mervyn King's uh, recent book that was published, Radical Uncertainty. You've got to read it. It's, it okay. bashes up on us behavioural economists, uh, you know, behavioural <laughs> finance guys a little bit. I think it's unfair. Right. Um, but yeah. it also basically says, you model builders, you know, stop pretending to be scientists because if you were scientists, you'd recognise that when your model didn't work in the real world, it's not a model worth keeping. <laughs> You changed the model, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But to that extent, though, I mean, all the RBA really could have done, given where we've ended up now, is just do it a little bit quicker. I mean, is that fundamentally what you would have had them done if you'd have been RBA chair three years ago and they said, Greg, what should we do? We have said, look, yeah. we're not going to go negative at any point, hopefully, but we can at least get to 0.25 quicker given the government's doing nothing. Is that, is that the, the yeah. solution? That's exactly what I would have done, is I would have spent the bullets, I would have spent them hard, and then I would have got on the bully pulpit. Because right. the, reality, the reality was that you could see where the issues uh, for the economy were. You could see where the issues for the economy were coming from. And mm. if they hadn't have had this unrealistic um, over-focus on housing, they could have mm. just, you know, locked housing down with macro pro and then dropped interest rates. But because they had the issue with housing... And then, of course, when houses dropped, what, 10, 10% or so, they panicked. Oh, we better cut rates. Yeah. Well, hello. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to say that. I thought that was, that was a little bit that. So just for our listeners, macro pru is macro prudential, which is basically the regulatory rules that can do things that kind of might mirror the sort of things you'd want to do with interest rates without having to do with interest rates, right? So they, they limited the growth of investment lending in particular. That was probably the biggest one, mate, I think, from memory. Um, yeah, but then they also... So, Sorry, they also quite correctly put in responsible lending guidelines. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah it was not wasn't just um, the RBA. It was it was the Council of Financial Reg Regulators. So it was ASIC, yeah, yeah. it was APRA, and it was um, and it was the RBA. But, but they that was great, by the way. That did exa I mean, that was one of the yes. one of the I thought anyway one of the masterstrokes of the last decade or two. Yes. They literally said out to do something. They yep. did it without causing any any meaningful degree of pain yep. or meaningful yep. side effects to anybody else. I mean, yep. as much as macro and kind of broad sweeping powers can do anything and do it with limited side effects, I thought this was pretty much textbook. I agree. I think that you know the reality the reality is if you can get housing to you know lose upside momentum and start to fall in price, then you know this is this is the thing that kills me about the way that central banks been running ever since Greenspan, right? It's a wealth transfer from the owners of assets, sorry, to the owners of assets from those who don't have assets, right? And right, we've just right. perpetuated it, perpetuated it, and perpetuated it. At no time have we said, oh, okay, well, maybe, maybe this is the time that we let the market cleanse. And, and what they were doing with housing was great. You can think about it, right? You know, I've got, I've got officers coming out of the academy who want to buy a house. Right? And we're working on products that will give them an equity share or shared equity so that they can get into a property in Sydney or Melbourne or somewhere else, right? And those kind of things nice. to lift them up. But the reality is that, you know, a $1 million average price across Sydney. Now, of course, you could say, well, oh, they could buy a unit. They don't have to. But, but at one point, we were, you know, this, this whole yeah. culture of flipping. And so I think it's time that we stopped this wealth transfer that we consistently do. That, that you know, I'm 51 years old now. I've got property I've got stocks, you must protect me. And, you know, that cohort of youngsters who are now 20 or 25, well, you're just going to have to pay more tax later or you're just going to have to rent off me. Let's have avocados, mate. That's all they need to do. That's right. How is it affordable then? to denigrate them, you know? <laughs> well, what, have they shown? what have they shown during COVID? Yeah. They're not the softies. You know, yeah. Yeah. We, we, we worked remotely as a bank really quickly. We went before the lockdowns. We were ready. My millennials, the ones that get maligned all the time, they've been brilliant. They've been nice. absolutely brilliant. They've stepped up. They've showed leadership, you know. And so it's a, it's a most uh, denigrated um, cohort of, of youngsters and they don't deserve it, you know. I like avocado toast too. <laughs> I've got to say, mate, my young bloke is 24 and he, uh, he, he made a story the other day, a hamburger with caramelised onion and avocado. And I thought, he, he's, he eats better and I think I almost had my entire life. And certainly at 20, 24, it was probably Macca's or a bloody bit of Vegemite toast. They know how to do it. 
Uh, kebabs late on a Friday night for me, mostly. <laughs> I might have been paying for the avocado just quietly too. Um, so I look for, for all of that, I think, as you say, you know, they could have done so much. I mean, dropping interest rates is going to put pressure on house prices. So they did what they needed to do. They capped it with the, with the macro pro rules by basically saying, okay, well, yeah, we know this is kind of not going to be great for prices, but we've got other ways of skinning the same cat without bringing the whole economy down, which made a whole lot of sense. Let me be devil's advocate for a second though, mate. If they'd have cut rates harder 18 months ago, we go into COVID at already minor, at already zero point two five. Don't we have negative rates by now just because they need to do they need to do something for confidence? No, um, because they would have just gone out the curve. Now, you know, okay. there, there, there's there's too much too much anchoring on the cash rate. Now, we all know now that you know there's a certain independence between the the price that you pay for a home loan, the price that you pay for a business loan, certainly credit mm-hmm. cards, um, compared <laughs> to where the cash rate is, right? Now, yep, yep. the reality about that is it's always been the same. Now, what's driven yeah, right. um, house, house uh, price, sorry, home loan prices down more than anything? Competition, mm-hmm. yeah, right? Okay. So, you know, I'm at 2.79 for, for new loans mm-hmm. at the moment, right? That's incredible. You know, our, not just mine, but other people's three-year loans are at, you know, 2.29, 2.39, those kind of things. Right, right. These are unprecedented numbers. So you know, it's, it's not just about the 0.25. Mm-hmm. It, it's about competition. Right, and right. The availability of finance. Yeah. So what the RBA yeah. would have done is exactly what they've just done. And maybe instead of, you know, Greg, you know, you and Police Bank can borrow 3% of your liabilities, it might have been 5% or it might have been 10%. Okay, yeah, yeah. But they would have just said, right, okay, well, here's a pile of cash. And yeah. Yeah. that's exactly what they've done. I like what they've done because the, the announcement effect, I could... I was going to write it. I was actually going to do a doctorate on this. The announcement effect of policy yeah. is less strong than the monetary effect of the dollars in the system and getting them. <laughs> right. Yeah. So yeah. that's part of Bill's point though. That yeah. is actually the bit of Bill's point on Bill Evans, that is folks um, yeah. on negative interest rates. What he's West trying Bank to chief do. Economist. Yeah. He's trying to say the bank shouldn't be able to hold excess reserves at the central bank. Yeah, without yeah. a penalty, they need to get it working in the economy. So that, yeah. I, I hate the idea of negative rates because of what it'll do to people. But I love the idea that don't sit on your reserves. Just mm-hmm. get the economy, get them moving. And they'll slowly start to see that multiplier effect. But you look at the NAB business survey, you look at confidence, mm-hmm. you look at conditions, no one's going to be running out to borrow. And if you look at you know, any decent commercial banker or corporate banker, it's going to go, How's your customer base looking right now, Greg or, or, yeah, or, yeah. or Scott? You know, yeah, you know yeah, you've got a, yeah. a trucking company in Western Sydney or a trucking company in Northern Melbourne or something, right? It's like, right. yeah, they're a bit tenuous. Well, I'm sorry, but we'll just see how things work and then maybe in six months we'll help you. Okay, mate, but let me, let me, let me pay a bit again on this one. So I, I, I agree with all that to some degree, but at one level you're saying, you know, businesses are already going to, they're going to borrow what they're going to borrow regardless of the rate, whether it's 0.25, 0. Yeah, you know, if, you, if you're borrowing it, let's say you're a business borrowing it three and a half cent per number, I don't know how reasonable that is. If it's three or it's four, you're probably going to borrow the same money for the same stuff. Isn't the challenge, and maybe I'm getting back to fiscal here unintentionally, but isn't the challenge actually the consumer dollar, not the business dollar? I mean, yeah, businesses need to invest to hire and then that creates demand. On the flip side, I don't know what more we can kind of do to poke businesses and like sort of making them take money. You kind of go like, is it the consumers like Greg, go and spend some more money. Here's some money or here's some way of getting you a pay rise or someone on welfare, some more money or getting some more people back to work rather than trying to use interest rates. Exactly. You've hit the point. This is why um, they needed to go earlier. They should have got unemployment down through four and a half percent. They should have got unemployment down through 4%. They should have got underemployment down at 6% or 7% because it's only then that we'll get the pay rises, right? And it's only then that people will feel confident about their circumstance to spend more. And it's only in spending more that the businesses will feel confident to invest. So you're dead right. The kook has been on this, uh, Stephen Kukulis, folks, um, Mm -hmm. has been on this for years. Get the damn unemployment rate down. Get the underemployment rate down. And then that will improve things. And so that for me, and I know I'm getting animated about this, but this no, has been a big journey in my, in my career, I guess, is that since I became a behavioral economics and finance guy back in the 90s, I've really focused on the humans much more. And mm-hmm. particularly in the last decade, when I've been focusing on the humans, I'm thinking not just about 
you know, the esoteric market-based way that, you know, mm -hmm. I did in the early part where you disconnect, <laughs> you know, Main Street yeah. and Wall Street, what have they got in common? Right, right, Only right. the bit that it says street. You know, the rest of it is <laughs> utterly disconnected, live in a, yeah, live in yeah. a completely different world, right? Yeah. But my focus, you know, when I have to stand in front, you know, from my accountant in Newcastle, I've been doing a, a talk every few months um, uh, up there, surf house, it's beautiful. I'm not sure whether people come to see me or they just come to see the view over Merriweather Beach, <laughs> but um, just a quick ad for Newcastle, best small city on the planet. Anyway, um, and because I've had to stand in front of those people, they own businesses and yeah, they come back right, to me right, and they right. say, oh, I really followed your advice. And the first thing I say is, well, it wasn't actually advice, folks. I was just giving you my view, but they're <laughs> listening. And so you've yeah. that, I started doing that in 2012, but really started me wow, thinking nice. about the connection between the humans, their customers, and then the business itself. And that linkage was obvious. And, and that's one of the reasons why I think that the NAB business survey is the single most important economic statistic you should focus on. And the reason for wow. that is it, it tells you conditions, it tells you confidence, it tells you profitability, it tells you trading, it tells you employment conditions. But more importantly, the vast majority of people work in businesses where they'll feel what their boss or what the owner of that business is feeling about conditions and confidence. And they then take that home to their families and that's their spending intentions. Okay. So that's why right, I'm okay. always banging on. That's a single, if I could only have one stat for the entire economy, it mm -hmm. would be that. Um, Andrew Charlton-Nillian's new data series from Alpha Beta is pretty <laughs> close though. It's, it's, been a good, it's been a good innovation during COVID. Nice, okay. Let me, let me um, put you in the treasurer's seat for a day, mate, or, or a month or a year, as long as you want it. Um, so JobKeeper, JobSeeker, we'll talk about that in a minute, but just generally. So let's, let's if I put you in charge of trying to stimulate the economy, um, and they can be included, of course, but just, you know, they're, they're kind of in place now. If I said to you, look, mate, set, set the, put the settings in place now for the next three to five years, make sure we get out of this, make sure we get unemployment down, all the things that need to be done. What, what's the, and again, without being political, we'll talk about the policy, not the politics. Um, what, what are the government not doing? What would you do differently? How would you get things back on track in a sustainable way? I'd probably operationalise JobKeeper. Um, I'd, give it, okay. I'd give it a job guarantee. And wow, I, would really okay. try, I would really, really try. I couldn't care less about the deficit. It'll get paid back, okay. right? Yep. Let's just borrow for, you know, at these ridiculous rates for 100 years. It'll get paid back through right. time. You know, yeah. the idea is to get people employed. Right? We want as many Australians in employment as we can get in employment. And then we'll get those multiplier effects. Now, I hate to be an economist again, but particularly <laughs> when they come in at the yeah. lower end, they've got yeah. a higher marginal propensity to consume. Totally. So the, the 750 bucks, uh, is it a week or a fortnight that, that you give them, right? Fortnight, in JobKeeper. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Oh, a week, sorry. Yeah, 50 bucks. That's going to get yep. spent. Yep. Right? Now, if I give them gainful employment to go yes. with that on the other side of COVID, and, and you know, who knows what it's going to be? It's going to be a proper job, right? We've got lots of stuff mm. to build, train people. thing I would have done five or 10 years ago, John Dawkins, he's got a lot to, lot, lot to be um, uh, proud of in his political career. But one of the things that he ushered in back in the late 80s, early 90s with what he did to higher education is somehow everyone thought you've got to go to uni and you've got to get yeah. a university degree. And then suddenly yeah. everyone thought you've got to go to year 12 because you've got to go to uni. And then guess what? We're not training people properly. We're mm -hmm. not, you know, that all of the things that COVID's just uncovered, we relied too heavily on importing stuff. I'd really, I'd really focus on the humans first. I'd get as mm -hmm. many people working as possible and I'd keep them in gainful employment. So whether that means I've got to build more infrastructure, there's plenty we can do here in this country. Um, yeah. You know, you've got to seed more CSLs and CSIROs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. What's the future fund for, if not the future? Get it investing. <laughs> yeah. right? Get us yeah, seeding nice. things. Get, yeah, it, get, yeah. it, get us training people. And so I guess, you know, some of my, um, some of the people on the right are going to be aghast at hearing me say this, right? <laughs> but, but quite frankly, you know. Do you agree we can just say socialism? I think that's what I heard. No, I'm Yeah, kidding. no, I think so. I think so. And, but the reality <laughs> is, right, I'm a humanist. I don't know if, I don't right. know if that's a, you know, but that's what behavior, the, the behavioral stuff yeah. has, has yeah. really pushed me towards is that. Yeah, nice. You know, I just want people to have the best life they can. Now, some people won't want to work, Scott, and that's their choice, right? But most people do, and most yeah. people want to be productive. And, you know, when I was a young bloke, it, you know, it, my, my nan died when she was 66. I thought, oh, you know, that's okay. When I hear people die in their 60s now, so we're all living into our 80s, so we can be... Yeah, right, into, right. Right? Yep. Some of the... Some, yep. Like, I've, I've rebuilt the executive leadership team here at the bank. 
And I've added in some people 60 and over. They're brilliant. Mm -hmm. I, they're still productive. I'm 51 now. I probably wouldn't get a job unless I was hiring myself. So <laughs> yeah. do, do yeah. you know what I mean? So, so we crazy, want to gain, gainfully employed yeah. for longer. So that would yeah. be the single most important thing I would do is work with business, industry, government, and policymakers mm -hmm. to just get as many people employed. And if it means we've got to have a, a job guarantee, I'd much rather have that than universal basic income. Oh, okay. So I was going to ask you about that. So before I do, um, you reminded me just your point about the humans first. It's like, you know, we, we forget so quickly. I say we, because I'm part of, you and I are part of the finance industry, but we, we, we somehow have, we fall into this view. No one ever says it explicitly, but that society is there to serve the economy. Right. And so many oh. people forget so quickly that exactly right. That, that the economy is actually there to serve society, right? It, it's a, it's a way to bring us all together in a productive way that helps us live our best lives rather, rather than, you know, exploiting each other to try and climb to the top of this pile and, you know, plant your flag on top of all these other bodies you've climbed over to get to, to get there. Um, it, it's a completely, I don't know, there's, 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 speaking of PhD, there's a PhD to be written about the last 30 years. I think the, you know, neoliberalism is, is a, not a very useful term and it gets, you know, it's, it's quite a pejorative term these days, but that change really, we've forgotten about the, we've forgotten about the individual in, in, in service of this thing called the economy is a little That's bit right. bizarre. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, you know, the, and we shouldn't be wedded to it. GDP is what, right. 80, 90 years old as a concept? You know, <laughs> exactly, it's, right. It's not, it's, not, it's not this universal thing we've always accepted. Yeah, yeah. You, know, yeah. it's the, you know, it's the quality of people's yeah. lives. Now, we're yeah. lucky. We're, we're Australian, right? Yeah. We, yeah. We, we, we seem to, well, I, I think there's a number of things that make us, you know, the best place to live on the planet. You know, we've got a vibrant mm -hmm. democracy. Everybody has to vote. So that kind of evens out the, you know, mm -hmm. the, 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 the loonies on either side of, uh, of, of the wings <laughs> of politics and, yep. and, and we're inclusive and all that. We, we're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, mm -hmm. but um, uh, if we can do that and then we can focus on the humans and get it about, you know, I don't know what, what you'd put instead of the, the, the product or, or, you know, just the mathematical right. collation yeah. Yeah. of yeah. a number for GDP. Why is it important? Yeah. You know, it's not really, particularly, particularly when you think about the way that it's constructed, you know, GDP equals C plus I plus G plus X minus M, right? So the... Mate, algebra works so well on a podcast. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, I know. I normally, do you know when I give, when I give, I know people are getting bored with me now, but... Not at um, all, mate. Not at all. When, when I, when I, that's the only equation I ever put up <laughs> when I do an economic discussion is All right, that, so let's help our listeners. You, right, you've so gone through GDP, some, give us, give us the acronym, right? go on. It equals consumption. That's the C. Yes. That's the vast majority of it. So yes. C plus I, investment. Yes. So right. that's nice. infrastructure, that's companies, that's all that other sort of stuff. Plus G, which is the government sector. And then in brackets, X minus M. Now right. the X is our exports, the M nice. is our imports. And right. so that equation is how, that's the high level. There's lots of thousands of things that float into that. But that's how we get it. And so yeah. you do that and you go, okay, well, what's the biggest part of that? Well, consumption, hello, you know, mm -hmm. people, you know, yeah, right. the government bit impacts on people too. Mm -hmm. Plenty of wealth transfers and all that kind of stuff um, through tax and all that kind of stuff. Investment's really mm -hmm. important. And then obviously what we export and what we import. Now, that, when you look at that and you go, well, where do the humans factor into that? Oh, they're the biggest subset. And that's yeah. where you've got to focus. You know, you don't stop exporting iron ore or you don't stop um, you know, feeding CSL so you can export whatever they make in any other, any other company. Right, right. But you, you do, you get a, a much stronger base by having the human part being as strong and as vibrant uh, as it can be. Makes sense. And that's, as you said, the marginal principle of spend, which you talked about before, is what also was just duck into really quickly, right? You, you give Twiggy an extra thousand bucks, A, he won't notice it, B, he's not going to spend it. You give a welfare recipient, someone who's just been put out of work, someone who's on the a minimum wage, a, a recent graduate from the police academy, one of your one of your customers, an extra thousand bucks. You can be sure they're going to spend nine hundred ninety five dollars and forty eight cents of it because they, they they don't have a choice, right? They need to replace the car, the fridge, the whatever. It gets spent. And guess what? You win twice. You win twice because you've given them money, and you've you, you've given them money. They can buy food. They can buy shelter. Mm -hmm. You know, they can buy clothes. They can, you know take the hubby or the missus or the family out for dinner, right? Yeah. So you, they spend the money and from an economic point of view, if you want to add up all those numbers again, it has a multiplier mm -hmm. effect. But more importantly, you've given them a life. You've, you've contributed yeah. Yeah. positively to their well-being. 
And and so you win twice when you when you you know how do you build a really good footy team? I love AFL, right? So how do we make Collingwood? That's okay, mate. You, you're, allowed, you're allowed your own occasional vice, you know. Yeah, yeah. But how do you make game, Collingwood the best team, right? You improve. Well, the that, that's a, no, well, that's not possible. So let's let's talk. Okay. Come on. Let's, let's improve a team that's actually worth improving. No, I'm kidding. So sorry, say that again because I talked over you for a joke. How do so, you improve Collingwood? So you improve the best, the, the, the worst four or five players in the team. You got eighteen. Right. You got twenty-two on the. You got twenty-two on the on the you know on the field and then then interchange. Mm-hmm. You've got yep. eighteen on the field, right? You might have five or six superstars. The rest are really good. But if mm-hmm. you can improve the four or five bottom players, you improve the team. If we can build up that bottom rung of society and get them moving, we improve the whole mm-hmm. economy in both um, uh, an economic GDP, but mm-hmm. in a well-being part. Um, you know, it's just a massive multiplier. That's how you fix, yeah. make this a better country to live in. It's already the best, but that's how you make it even better. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. It's always struck me that... You know, when people talk about, you know, companies wanting tax cuts or, or doing this to getting an extra couple of cents worth of profit or price out of something, it, it's, all, it's that short-termism of like, oh, I'll get an extra bit of tax revenue now or sorry, a bit of extra profit now with the tax cut. It's like, fine. But if you're an investor who's planning to invest for any length of time past 12 months, you want some growth next year as well. And, and try, yeah. trying to screw down the, the best possible return now, if you're going to sell that in three months' time, I guess maybe you make a argument and say, well, I'll get what I can, I'll get out. I guess if you're going to go live on Mars, fair enough. But for the rest of us, a functioning economy, a really healthy growing economy is worth a truckload more than all those little bits you might want to scrape about, a little bit of tax cut here or an extra benefit there. You might better off, you know, if, if I had a company I could put it anywhere in the world, I'd put it in the economy that was functioning best, almost irrespective of the tax rate. I mean, there's always, it's not, you know, it's not arbitrary, but generally speaking, I, I'd, I'd happily choose, if I had a 20-year growth outlook for a, company, for a country, and had a tax rate that was three, four, five percentage points higher, I'd go there in a heartbeat because the compound value of that, again, the, the personal stuff is way more important, as you say, but even if you're completely selfish, you still choose the best economy rather than the best tax rate. But you know what had happened the day after you announced that decision? Tell me. The board would sack you. <laughs> exactly. And that's why it doesn't right. happen. Because, that's and, right. and that's why we've yeah. outsourced everything. To you know, yeah. If you yeah. think about it, right, I remember... Um, doing economics. I know everyone does business at school these days, but when we were kids, mm-hmm. we all did economics, right? And, and commerce was really a precursor to economics. And then you went off and you did economics and, you know, three unit economics in the HSC and all that kind of stuff, right? Sounds familiar. But, but I remember, you know, we used to talk about perfect competition, right? Mm-hmm. And the thing that we've done, if you think about what we were taught in year nine commerce, right, is we've shifted all our companies to the lowest cost labour input continually over the last 30, 40, 50 years, right? We're now at the point with COVID where people have recognised the error of this, right? So that supply chains need to be reworked. And it's not good enough that one of our major banks had to, and this is not a pop at them, this is just the model. One of our major banks had an outage for a day because the country where they had their call centre got closed. And right. they had no one answering the phones and they had to scramble to get everything back, right? It, it, yeah, it, you know, that, that all our pharmaceuticals were suddenly made in China, that only one company in Australia made face masks. And, and so now that those supply chains get reworked, this is really important because that short-term thinking is going to have to be balanced out with the kind of long-term thinking that you're espousing there. So if you did it six months ago, you would have got sacked. If you announced it today... <laughs> You might have a chance of... I'm a visionary, Greg. You are a visionary. You are. You are. You are. You are. And I think we should also ban buybacks, but that's more an American thing. than. Oh, okay. I'm going to get that with you in a minute. Uh, I'm I'm going to write that one down on my little piece of paper. I've got to find one. Mate, uh, I'm all virtual. I don't use pens and paper anymore. Hey, um, tell me about the universal basic income thing. Now, I've never been a particularly strong fan. I've always thought it was a loony idea. And I have to say in the last... but, But in the last couple of months... Given the speed of the of the decline, and given the fact that JobKeeper, job JobKeeper, so yeah, as as good as it was, still took a while and still was a bit painful and whatever else, it just seemed to me an obvious example of where something like a UBI would have been useful. Maybe on top of a job guarantee, to your point, but just that very idea that if my boss gives me the result tomorrow, I can pay the rent on Monday morning, 
because I've got a, a, a regular stable cash flow. I don't have to go to Centrelink. I don't have to do the bloody forms and all that kind of stuff. As part of a solution, I'm not entirely sure I wouldn't at least trial it for 12 months to kind of see if it can actually add some value to smooth out those, the bump, like the really, the really dislocating bumps, not the general kind of just slow back and forward, but the, the COVID, type, I mean, again, always obvious in hindsight, but the COVID type stuff, if we all have a UBI, I'm pretty convinced we would have had nowhere near the same degree of dislocation. Yeah, I think that's so, true. I, I guess my, my problem with the UBI is about incentives. So yeah. I'm, so there's not that much difference between my job guarantee idea and UBI. You know, the only right. difference is that for the job guarantee. You've trademarked job guarantee, haven't you? Yeah, you've got to, you've got to go and do something, right? So, yeah. And yeah, I'm not talking sense. about you know, go and pick up pieces of paper off the, yeah. off the yeah. road and then throw them in the air and then do it again next day. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm many talking shops, about yeah. genuine gainful employment because I think from my point of view, and I could be wrong, it might be that the UBI gives the kind of um, uh, personal well-being and satisfaction that mm -hmm. what I'm looking for with the job guarantee. So I'm, I'm trying to solve with a, a job guarantee idea both the personal need to contribute and the economic need to have enough money to, you know, keep yourself and your family in a reasonable, you know, above the poverty line kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so that's, but I, th I think the, that most people and not everybody, but most people would rather be gainfully employed. And it's the, and I think what the, what the job guarantee thing does that the UBI doesn't, is it forces people to think about how they're spending the money and yeah, right, therefore okay. they'll think about what the outcome of that spending is because I think what UBI does is it falls into the same trap that the economic thought process of the last 30 or 40 years is. If you give money, they'll spend it. And if they spend it, then that'll go into the economy. We can add all that up and that's great. Right. But right, what right, I'm right. doing is I'm saying, well, give them a job. And then when you give them a job, think mm -hmm. about what that job's going to contribute to society, not yeah, the economy, yeah, yeah. to society. Yeah. And then happy days, we win twice because they spend the right, money right. anyway. They've got a job. They're happy when they see, you know, their hubby or their, their wife and their kids at night because they've done something. And yeah, so it's just, a, sure. it's a subtle, it's a subtle difference. I like it, mate. I like it. Hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold the buyback question for a minute. So let, let's get on. To, let's get on to some more specifics. So great conversation. Thank you for that. And I think um, all I'm saying, mate, is when you run, if I can be running, mate, I'd appreciate it. So McKenna Phillips, yes. 2024. I'm thinking is a um, is a possibility. I'm just advising myself on your ticket, but we'll see how no, we that's, go. That's cool. I'm happy to have you, but um, unfortunately, I'll be a single man then because Mrs. McKenna <laughs> told me that if I ever run, uh, I shall be doing it as a single person. So unlikely to happen. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, oh, that, that, there goes that idea. I guess I'll stay in my current job. Mate, uh, Mrs. McKenna's a lovely woman, I'm, I'm sure. And g'day, Mrs. Yeah. McKenna, if you're listening. Uh, mate, the, so you, you're obviously CEO of Police Bank. Um, you have yourself a bit of a free ad with some interest rates, which is awesome. So 2.79, you were saying for a variable at the moment. And uh, yes. 2.29, 2.39 for fixed. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, well, the RBA gave me money for three years at 0.25%. It's incumbent on me to then try and give it back to, to the members at a cheap rate. So it's so, pretty reasonable. Yeah, mate. Can yeah. We, let, let me. I, I was about police banking a little bit specifically, but let me talk about community-owned banking. I'm a, I'm a happy customer of a different uh, community-owned bank. Um, if I'm eligible to join your bank or not, we'll talk about that afterwards. You are. But, uh, for now, I'm. There you go. I'm, I'm, so I'm pretty happy about uh, about. I've always, for a very long time, I've been a member of credit union than a, than a mutual bank. Um, I'm. I, I'm going to ask you for. A, a bit, I'm not going to ask you to throw grenades at your mates necessarily. I'm not going to name anything, but. Um, one of the things that really sort of irritates me is the community-owned banking sector who are working on behalf of their members. From time to time, I've seen ads trying to entice people to take out personal loans for this and personal loans for that and Christmas shopping and travel plans and upgrade your car. And there's a, there's a line between between kind of promotion and and service, right? And I get that you're in a competitive market. And I get you got to lend some money to make some money. And I get that all happens. Just your thoughts on, on as, a, as a mutual bank, what the right... How do, you, how do you pick the? And I'm not saying this other mob are right or wrong necessarily, though I find it a bit distasteful. Just from a from a kind of you know financial well-being perspective, how, how do you try and square those circles? How do you run a bank that is commercial in nature but mutual by design? Well, you must. Um, and it's a good question because it's it's one <coughs> that I've been struggling with pretty much from the, the moment I walked into the door at Newcastle Permanent back in uh, 2007. And my, my thoughts on that, the way we're building Police Bank, because we've just gone through uh, a strategic refresh and a strategic reset 
um, and we're looking for relevance, you know, relevance mm. to current customers, current members, you know, a lot of whom are older, but also relevance to the younger cohort. Of course, right. about it, police are on the front line of technology. The, the, mm. the, the new ones that are going to come through, you know, they're going to live on their phone. So I've got to balance that kind of, yeah. you know, the desire of the existing members for the bank that they've always had, but the desire mm -hmm. to be relevant for the new members. And part of that is a digital offering, which is, which is what, you know, and, and digitization and, and all that work I did at Business Insider, um, yeah. uh, interestingly sponsored by the CBA, which was fantastic. I'd like a big shout out to them. <laughs> thank you. Um, uh, but uh, so, so there's that. So we've got, to, yep. we've got to be digital savvy, but what that does. So if I go back, ever since Pyramid collapsed, um, you know, back in the 90s, and then they changed the, the way that, that, that mutuals were regulated, and then over the last sort of 10 or 15 years, what regulation did is it's one size fits all. And the best example of that was the investor home loan cap, right? So Westpac, CBA, NAB, they were allowed to grow at 10% of their investor book. Police Bank, Teachers Mutual, you know, Bank Vic down in Victoria, Q Bank up in Queensland, I'm picking all the police ones, you know, PNN over in WA or, um, or the PCU in South Australia, all police banks, by the way, except for teachers. Um, what... We were allowed to do was grow 10% of our investment home loan book. So whereas the majors right. were allowed to grow billions and billions and billions, yeah, I was allowed to grow $20 million a year. <laughs> right. And my 10% cap was enforced as hard as Westpac's 10% cap. So yeah, you could do anything to actually take share from the majors. You had to exist within an arbitrary. It wasn't 10% of the nation's yeah. investable yeah. business. Yeah, right, right. anti-competitive. And everything right. that regulation right. has done in the last 20 years has been utterly anti-competitive. Take, for okay. example, let's say the majors, right? What do the majors do whenever there's any pressure on them? Oh, yes, but we give dividends to so many people and it goes into their super and helps fund their retirement. Guess what happens to my dividends, Scott? Guess what happens to the tax I pay? It dies on my balance sheet. Yeah, right. That is so anti-competitive. Yeah, why yeah should, right. Okay. Why should the majors be able to hold it out as a stick every time the mm -hmm. government tries to say, oh, hey, hey, maybe, and then it dies on my balance sheet? I, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. My franking credit. Like you, you as a member, you don't get access to those franking credits, right? Right, right, right. You should be able to offer a product to police, mm. right? You know, we just had National First Responders Day. How about yeah. as part of National First Responders Day, we say, hey, Greg at Police Bank, you know, and, and the CEOs of all the other first yeah, responders yeah. banks, right? Mm. How about we're going to let you use those franking credits to lower the cost for those first responders, right? How about that? But no. You know, I pay tax. I had it, no idea. It dies yeah. on my balance sheet. It is, the, it is the single biggest thing that really gets up my nose. But That's to go back to your original question, hmm. we were forced into one-size-fits-all banking okay. because of regulation. Now, yeah, what's yeah. the good thing? The best thing to happen to the mutual sector, quite frankly, is the responsible lending guidelines. <laughs> because it means... That always should have been, yeah. Yes. It means yeah. that somebody who can't afford a loan from me right? Mm -hmm. Quite correctly, can't wander off to a major and they go, oh, of course you can. That happens yeah, right. so many times. Because you're trying to do the right thing by your members and not extend credit responsibility. So many times, so many times. Right, but the right, best right. thing about where we are now, 2020, we've got open banking coming in 2021. We're all getting ready with the digital kit. Um, mm. you know, and so what does it do? To go exactly to your point. My message to my team here and to our members is we will offer you solutions. Now, yeah, if that ends up in a sale, well, that's fine, right? And mm -hmm. I know sales are a dirty word, but there's nothing wrong with selling if it's an ethical mm -hmm. product, which ours is, right? So, Correct. and so, so are all mutual banks, right? To, for the most part, right? Mm -hmm. But the key is offer a solution and let the sale yeah, right. sell itself, right? What, what, what do I mean by that? I mean, you know, let's give you a home loan with a really cheap credit card, you know, that goes off your, your home loan rate or something near that, that, you know, mm -hmm. let's give you all that lifestyle kind of stuff. And if you don't need it, you don't want it, you know, that's mm -hmm. fine. But that's been the issue that um, uh, has happened is that the one size fits all. What open banking does, what digital technology does, it is, it allows me to reconnect in a way that the, the guys of number one division were trying to do when they set up the police credit union number one back in 1964, because right. that's where we came from. It was yeah, member nice. service. If you think about Newcastle Permanent, obviously. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. Newcastle Permanent was a star bucket system. What does that mean? You'd put money in, there'd be a lottery, and whoever <laughs> got the lottery would be able to go and buy their 
buy their property, Maitland Mutual. That was a super old school. That's the way I used to, that's how I started, right? That was how credit unions kind of came about in the first place, right? Exactly right. You know, Maitland Mutual started in 1885. You know, another, awesome. another, another hunter one. You know, there's yeah, IMB's yeah. been around for over a hundred years as That's well down, down in Wollongong, right? Now, the Royal Mutual Building Society, as it was called. Yeah, yeah. I know yep. I'm picking on all the New South Wales ones, but um, you know, they're they're, they're the ones that. That's I the area you know. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but but this is what we're for. You know, I remember. Mm-hmm. You know, I think my, my first self-driven um, uh, account that I ever opened when I was working at Mansour's in Parramatta was a, a credit union opposite Parramatta train station. And, yeah. you know, it, 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 they, we do good things. Four million customers, $120 billion worth of um, balance sheet. Awesome. <laughs> my, first, uh, my first account was with the New South Wales State Building Society, mate, back in the day, the big green, yeah. mass, massive big green signs. I actually got, and since I was speaking of the sign of the times, I got 7% interest. Now, I'm not entirely convinced that at some subliminal level isn't responsible for me doing this job, quite honestly. The power of compounding as a kid, where you see your 10 bucks or 15 bucks getting 7%. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, I don't know how you don't get excited about the career in finance. Where you, and not even to make that money, just where you see the power of that. Yeah. I'm pretty convinced yeah. subconsciously that's, that's at least partly responsible for where I am now. So you've just answered the question why negative rates will be negative. <laughs> but yeah, totally, exactly. Mate, um, if I can, on, on banking and banks, and, and maybe the big question is house prices. So for our listeners who are investors, um, I'm not asking you to comment on the big four banks necessarily. Feel free no. to, of course, if you want to, but I'm not going to ask you to, to jump into that trap. Um, I've got some concerns about the housing market when it comes to big four bank profitability and profit growth and all that kind of stuff moving forward. On the on the front lines, to the extent you feel comfortable to talk about it, um, your thoughts on, on kind of house prices and, and how that impacts the economy, how that impacts banks' balance sheets. I mean, I, I made the point, not, not to scare people not too long ago, look, you know, I thought rates, uh, dividends would be cut and they were. I think it's a non-zero chance that one of the big four banks needs some support at some point. Now, it's probably past that now, but two months ago when things were in free fall, it was not impossible that the government had to step in, a la Lloyd's in the, in the UK. Where, where are things sitting from what you're seeing, man? How, how, how does it all look? Yeah, so first thing to say is... Um... Australia's lucky that it's got the four banks. It's lucky that it's got the four pillars and it's lucky that they are so strong. It, you know, As retail frankly, banks, right, rather than investment banks has always been my thought. Yes, you share that? That's, that's okay. right. That's right. If you, think about, if you think about the missteps that some of my old employers have made, it's been in the non-retail part of their bank, right? Yeah, and, yeah. you know, it's been when they've gone, like, like a lot of Australian companies, it's been when they've gone overseas and bought some Midwestern bank or something like that, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so the big four banks are great. Now, when I... I don't ever criticize the big four because they're just doing what they're doing in that sense. Now we know that banking as a whole lost its way and the Royal commission exposed that. And hopefully that that gets fixed. But what I rail against is the anti-competitive nature of everything we do here. There's nothing wrong with having four really strong banks. If we've got a vibrant undercover and if, if, if those, those, you know, companies below that top canopy can compete because they'll, you know, keep them honest. They'll offer good products. They can focus on things. It's the one size fits all regulation that's a problem. Now to go back to the housing market. So mm. I don't think that there was ever a chance that an Australian oh, okay. bank needed support. And okay. the reason I don't think that is because they're just big building societies. So if you think <laughs> right, about okay. it, right, largely, right? Yeah. If you think about it, you know, as soon as the government drop, jumps in and supports, as soon as the RBA does its innovative stuff, and just says, how much money do you want at 0.25%, 3% if it was retail yeah. or 5% if it was um, uh, commercial lending. That really supports the economy and supports, supports the bank. So I don't think that was ever okay. an issue. If you think about dividends, I agree with you 100% and have for a long time. Mm. They always had to come down. You know, the, the returns that our banks were making for an economy this size with a product <laughs> really just about, you know, I'm going to borrow from you here and I'm going to lend to you there and I'm going to pay, take 15% or something. No, it doesn't yeah. work like that, right? Um, so I, I agree on that. So in terms of the housing market, mm. I think there's a couple of things there. There's nothing wrong if house prices fall 10 or 15% or 20% if it's done mm-hmm. slowly in an orderly fashion. I look at yeah. WA. Perth's house prices have fallen, what, 25% from the peak, right? That's been uncomfortable for a lot of people that I've met over the last few years, right? I know people who are either locked in over there and it weighs on them every single day or they lost money because they had to sell because of illness or divorce or something like that. So it does have negative impacts. But when you think about it, the flip side is those young police coming out of the academy can now afford a house in WA. 
And it hasn't derailed the WA economy. And it's not just because of iron ore. So in that sense, if it's not a, a collapse, the, the most important thing for Australia is the unemployment rate. You know, I remember when I was at Newcastle Permanent, we borrowed some money from the Americans in um, 2007 and 2008, about $500 million. It was just to, you know, to put, to put cash on the balance sheet. I was lucky enough that the, you know, we, we saw, we didn't know the GFC was coming, but we saw things start to go pear-shaped in 2007 and we went to the USPP market. Now, I had to make the case to them when everything really hit the fan in 2008 that we, a little bank, Newcastle Permanent, even though it's a big mutual, the second biggest, I think, um, wasn't going to fall. And one of the things I did, there was a paper that analysed why people default. And, you know, Australians just don't default. The stigma, the, the full recourse loans, um, you know, all the, the institutions of government to enforce the contract, all those kind of things. So we're pretty, pretty safe in that regard. So it's then falls to unemployment and the inability to pay back your home, home loan where you get the problem. So another reason why I like the universal job guarantee idea, um, if you can keep people employed, they'll keep paying their salary. It's just what Australians do. So in that sense, if we can keep the unemployment rate, take it from 11 or wherever it's, it is, get it, you know, and, and then under, underemployment's way above that and then get it back down to say six, six and a half on the next five years, not three like the RBA thinks, that's ridiculous. But let's get it back down there, we'll be okay and house prices can fall. If you ask me, where do I think they're going to go? I think that what COVID's done, again, behaviourally, it means places like Geelong, places like Newcastle, places like Orange. I don't know Queensland enough, maybe the Sunshine Coast, but they're, it's already expensive out there. But they'll start to benefit. Whereas where I'm standing, talking to you now in Surrey Hills, May not, because the, the positive externalities, I know I'm sounding like an economist, but the positive externalities by living close to the office yeah. and mixing with all of those people have now been shown to have some downside. And also, I, my team ran the whole bank remotely during COVID. If my, it's incredible, if, isn't it? Yeah, if my team want to work from home and they're effective, what do I care? So that's less people coming into this part of town. That's less people who yeah. want to live in this part of town and I think so demographically, you need to be even more discerning. You can't just buy in Surrey Hills, for example, and say, well, Sydney's going to have 8 million people in 30 years' time. I'm going to buy in Surrey Hills and sit on it. You can probably still do that, um, but you might want to wait for a 10% drop or a 15% drop or something like that. But the other component about this is I'm talking like a property investor. If you're a, a homeowner, then there's a rental component in the purchase anyway. So what I always say to people, and this has never changed in the 20 or 30 years that people have been asking me because they think I've got knowledge because I'm a banker, is if you <laughs> want to live there and you can afford it and you've got a job, buy it. Totally. And that, that, it's that a lifestyle asset, right? Not an investment asset, yep. You know, it's, 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 that, that, that for me is the most important thing. If you, if you like it, because the thing is, it's not homogenous. Even though we've got all these indexes that pretend houses are, are all the same and we can say that, you know, houses rose, you know, 0.1% yesterday. Yeah, big deal, they did not. Um, the thing is that every single house on every single street is different for the most part, except, you know, in some of those old retirement villages that are being built now. And that's what makes it important. It's a lifestyle asset with a rental component. And so if I, if I was to, if I was a 25 year old buying a property in Surrey Hills or Orchard Hills right now, and it's where I wanted to live, what does it matter if it drops 10, 10 or 20%? It doesn't. And so that for me is the critical thing. Except that at some level, the fall itself has the impact on confidence to go back full circle to the, to the behavioural piece. Does it matter to me my house is worth 20%? Absolutely not. Do I feel a little bit poorer though? I spend a little bit less money? I guess there's still that potential, right? Like to the extent we can't convince people not to care, they're going to care a little bit. Their wealth effects, though slightly discredited now, it still has some impact on our, on our willingness to spend. Yeah, the Audi dealers will certainly care, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and you could see that. You could see that in the data when the, when the yeah. house prices fell, um, you know, vehicle sales fell and luxury vehicle sales fell particularly. So yeah, right. is it, but is that a bad thing? You know, like no, I'm, not, I'm not trying yeah. to, I'm not trying to um, like a last thing in the world I want is for any particular sector to be under pressure, but you know, that's the reality. You know, mm. you know, a, a $150,000 car financed out of the proceeds of a house that you haven't realized <laughs> that on a debt, you're going to have to pay back. Oh. That makes little sense to me. Now I know, you know, I've 
people lost their jobs in my house and it wasn't the wealthiest house in the world when I grew up. So I'm a conservative person, but yeah, yeah. Um, that's never, that's never, you know, I'm a Toyota driver for goodness sake. You know, Same. Got- Mate, I am too. No, no one needs a car lease just quietly. They're the worst thing. They've got to be one of the worst, other than bloody overpriced funeral insurance. I reckon, I reckon car leases are about the worst product you can find, saddle someone with because it just puts them on this treadmill of upgrading, upgrading, upgrading and paying just effectively a lifetime worth of interest. Drives me nuts. A- absolutely. My, um, we've got an FJ Cruiser we've had since nice. 2011 yep. and I've got a, I've got a Kluger. Like, you know, yeah, what, yeah. what do they cost us? You know, my, my, my son's now driving. We bought him an old Prado. Like, you know, uh, my daughter's yep. going to get a car next year and she'll end up with a RAV4 or something. So there'll be four yeah. Toyotas in the front yard. You know, we got, we got a Prado on a Golf, mate. We're, we're exactly yeah. the same situation, with little, little, which is great, by the way. Massive tangent. Mate, you've been super generous with your time. I'm happy to talk for as long as you are, but you're a busy man with actually a bank to run. So I'm not going to keep you too long. I am going to give you a chance to sound off about buybacks, only because you mentioned it, and I reckon it'd be a fun way to finish. So I've heard some people talk about the terrible, terrible nature of buybacks. I heard Warren Buffett only a couple of months ago at the Berkshire Hathaway AGM defend buybacks, at least conceptually. So I'm going to light the fuse and step away. Um, why are buybacks so terrible? Well, I think they favour short-term thinking over the long-term investments that you, you, you talked about. You know, I, I guess from my point of view, if you look at Apple, for example, um, you know, they've handled their buyback program really well. Um, but you look at some of the others, there have been clear efforts to goose up the compensation of the current incumbents. And I think that's where it really gets me. I would much rather, and, and I know it's only a subtle difference, I would much rather make a capital return or pay a dividend and let the investor decide than stand in the market every time the price falls with my own company's money to support the price. That's ultimately, so I'm thinking about this behaviourally. I think buybacks create really poor incentives for the managers of companies. And I think that those incentives are then rewarded because of indexing. And because we've shifted from uh, an investment market where you know, the vast majority of money was managed by people reading Motley Fool and making decisions and finding value and all that kind of stuff, the buffetisms, if you could call it that way, yeah, right. to people who just want to put their money into an index fund because things just go up, um, that buybacks are then re-incentivised. And what does that end up with? It ends up with all those really, really cheap options getting exercised for the management of the firm. And I think that's where the, that's where the incentive's wrong. It's, you know, theoretically, there should be no difference between a buyback uh, a right. dividend or a capital return. But behaviourally, they are materially different in the incentives they set up. So that's why um, I get really agitated, although I'm being quite calm here. Um, I get really <laughs> exercised about yep. why I dislike buybacks. It's all about the incentives. And as a behavioural guy, that nudges people to favour themselves over the company. All right, but you're, you're, a, you're a stand-up bloke. And I would trust you with my life. So I'm going to put you in charge of Woolies for, for a year. When the Woolies share price falls to $10 and you've got a spare couple of million dollars in the bank and you can meaningfully benefit existing shareholders by buying back those Woolies shares at $10, but you, get, you get no bonus out of it. It's no incentive for you, Greg. I'm just saying, mate, you've got a couple of million dollars in the back pocket, of, you know, the company back pocket. You can materially benefit those existing shareholders and continuing shareholders by reducing the capital base, the reverse of a, of a capital raising effectively, where it's a capital kind of reduction. Shouldn't you be, wouldn't you be A, wrong not to do it? And shouldn't you be allowed to do it because it is genuinely in the, in the shareholders' best interest to have fewer shares on issue if you can get a pretty good price? So I guess the answer to that is it depends. I know I sound like right. an economist now, but it depends on the atmospherics. Let's just say... Yeah. Woolies, Woolies shares have, have fallen off a cliff. And yep. let's just say some companies that I'm interested in, right, to expand the Woolies brand, uh, yep. you know, the, or the product set um, have fallen. Well, I may be better to go and spend it on that. That's where, that's the issue for me, is that it, people aren't thinking about how can I add to my portfolio? Now, you can say that the, the days of, say, the General Electrics are gone. Um, but I would always prefer to look around atmospherically and see where's the right place to put the money. And if the right place is to, you know, give people, you know, money back or buybacks, I'd probably prefer still to pay them a special dividend okay. and let them decide. Um, the only time I'd ever really want to buy my shares back is if there was an exogenous shock that knocked us over and mm. we were at risk 
of losing the business to a predator that we knew was going to break it up. So that, 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 that then would change. So, so it all, to say it depends, um, it, it really does to me. And uh, so it, it, you've all, for me, you've always got to, and I guess that's why I'm running a mutual, you've always got to think about the shareholders um, first and foremost. And if they're at risk of losing the business to people, and the staff, sorry, I should say too, um, if you're at risk of losing that business to a predator who's going to break it up and, you know, do a sort of a predatory whatever it is that they used to do in the 80s and sometimes they still do now, um, yeah. then I would buy the shares back and I would take it away from them by spending my own cash. Um, but quite frankly, equally, if I was a CEO of, uh, of Woolies, uh, I would buy with my own money in that instance mm. and I would sing it from the rooftops. Yeah, right, right, and right. And then get, get, get the impact that way too. Nice. Mate, you're a very good man. Greg McKenna is the CEO of Police Bank. Mate, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I've learned a heap. I'm sure our listeners have thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, at least your part of it. My part's been just to get out of your way and ask some questions. It's so, been a great mate, conversation, you. Scott. <laughs> thank you very much. Mate, people can follow Greg on at Gregory McKenna on Twitter. If you want to follow someone who's smart, thoughtful, really considered, and you've heard a lot of that today already, um, follow Greg. Um, and frankly, if you're a member of Police Bank, you're in spectacularly good hands. Um, I get nothing for saying that, of course. It's a mutual, so I get nothing out of it. Uh, but I would feel very, very good about anyone um, who has a, is a customer of Police Bank under Greg's stewardship. It's a, um, he's a smart guy, a very thoughtful guy. You've heard that today. Uh, so, Greg, thank you very much, mate. Thank you for the time, and thank you for sharing your wisdom with our listeners. And thank you, Scott. Thank you for your time. It's been wonderful. And thank you for your very kind words multiple times through this. Uh, the check's in the mail. Not, not police bank check, one from you personally. No, of course right? not. No, yeah, good, that's good. right. All right, that does wrap us up. Before we go, don't forget you can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast through iTunes or your favourite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, give us a rating, five stars. It'd be lovely. And please do tell your friends who couldn't use a little more foolishness in their lives. That's it for this week's Motley Full Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Full on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.